0: Today's lesson is about uh, our heart, discipline one. And we're going to be looking at three troubling truths for our heart, and we're going to be looking at five comforting truths for our heart. And if you remember from the uh, God's Transformation of Man blue handout that we have, uh, we have the left section, we have the center section, we have the right section. The left section pretty much describes the unregenerate man. And one thing that's characteristic of the unregenerate man is that he is unable to not sin. Sin is his master and it rules over him. After transformation, uh, the regenerate man is able to not sin. And then when we talk about the heavenly man, the great thing about the heavenly man, the thing that every believer should be looking forward to, is that the heavenly man is unable to sin. So the regenerate man is able to not sin, but we are still prone to sin. I think our experience tells us that every day. We find that out to be the case. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at these three truths that are a very accurate description of the unbeliever, of the unregenerate man. But at times, they can also be descriptive of the regenerate man. And this can be very troubling to our hearts. Um, So we're going to be looking at those three truths, but then we're going to be looking at the work that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do in the life of the believer. And the goal here is that we do leave this place very impressed and very much in awe of who God is and what he's done to save sinners, to sustain sinners, and to prepare sinners for the next age. So let's look at those three truths first that are troubling to our heart. The first one is that what keeps a sinner from God is hardness of heart. And would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? We're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 to 19. Uh, Ephesians is similar to many of the letters that Paul wrote, and it's characterized by on the front end, Paul describes how it is that God saves. And on the back end of the letter, Paul describes how we live out that new life. So Paul takes three chapters in Ephesians to explain what it is that God did to save. And then he spends chapters 4, 5, and 6 teaching the Ephesians how to live in light of that. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 4, um, we have the function of the body in relation to one another. In verses 11 through 16, you get a beautiful picture of how the body of Christ is to work. In verses 11 and 12, you have apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, pastors. All of those are supplied by God for the equipping of the saints. And then you have in verses 15 and 16 the way the body is functioning with each other. You have the body speaking the truth in love to one another. And then, verse 16, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, you have uh, the body functioning properly, being fitted together rightly, causing the growth of the body. So the body doing what you guys were just doing just a few minutes ago, interacting with one another, asking how your week has gone, talking about things. Uh, That's what God uses to cause the growth of the body. And that's God's design for the body of Christ. We weren't saved onto islands. We were saved into a body that functions together. But it's with that picture in mind that, that Paul begins to talk about the aimless walk and the futile mind that is in the unbeliever. So let's look at verses 17, 18, and 19. What Paul is doing here is he is explaining why unbelievers are spiritually ignorant. And the ignorance that's in them is not an accidental ignorance. It's not an unintentional ignorance. Actually, it's an intentional ignorance. It's an ignorance that they're very intentional about having. The only reason the unbelieving man wants to remain ignorant of God and his will, you can see it at the end of verse 18, is because of the hardness of his heart. And so what is hardness of heart? We want to make sure we have a clear understanding of that since we're talking about it. Hardness of heart is to willfully reject in your heart, in your inner man, at the core of who you really are. You reject at that level what your mind knows to be true. So to deliberately reject something at a heart level is to have a hardness of heart. You don't allow the truth that's in your mind to penetrate who you are as a person. And that's what's going on in this passage. So what we're going to do is we're going to start at the back of verse 18 and we're going to work our way backwards through to verse 17 and 16, uh, verse 17 and see what's happening here. It's because of that hardness of heart that a person is spiritually ignorant. And it's because of that ignorance that a person is excluded from the life of God and that they're darkened in their understanding. And back in verse 17, this spiritual darkness is why the unbeliever is walking in the futility of their mind. So the person who is spiritually ignorant is excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. That's the unbeliever. But the believer has the ability to harden his own heart too. He can temporarily lose his softness and his responsiveness to the truth of God. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 3 to see what the believer needs to do in light of this. The letter to the Hebrews is a really great letter because it puts Christ in an exalted position. The author of Hebrews is helping his audience understand that Jesus is a better high priest and that Jesus has a higher position than the angels and that Jesus is a mediator of a better covenant. And here in chapter 3, the author is helping his audience understand that Jesus has a superior role to Moses. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 together. We're not going to read the whole passage. We're going to look at selected verses so we can understand the role that Christ has and the response that the believer must have. So the author writes, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, He was faithful to him who appointed him. Drop down to verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all his house, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast to our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they, that's Old Testament Israel, provoked me, As in the day of trial in the wilderness. Verse 1. The Christian is to consider Jesus. He's to keep Jesus at the forefront of his mind. And so, what is he supposed to keep in the front of his mind about Jesus? Well, there's two things here. In verse 1, you see Jesus' role. The believer needs to keep the role of Jesus in mind. And the author describes two of Jesus' roles Jesus is the apostle. He was a teacher and a prophet. At the beginning of the letter, opening the letter, the author tells us that in these days God has spoken to us in his son. So Jesus was a teacher. God spoke in Christ. But also, in addition to being the teacher, Jesus is the high priest. He's a servant. And as a servant, he offered himself as a propitiation for our sins. So that's what the believer needs to consider when they consider the role of Jesus. That Jesus really is the high priest. He really is um, the apostle. He teaches me. His words are authoritative in my life. And he is the one who served to bring about my salvation. But in addition to his role, we need to look at his position. In verse 2, the author tells us that Jesus was faithful to the father who appointed him. He was faithful to the task. In verse 6, we read that Jesus was faithful as a son over that house. That's over the body of Christ, the collection of believers who have been gathered together through Christ's blood. The Father appointed Jesus, and in turn, Jesus, as a faithful Lord and Master, he was that faithful one over his sheep. Jesus is the perfect Lord. He is the perfect Master. That's what the believer needs to keep in mind. And when we lose sight of that, and when we don't consider Jesus and his rightful place over our lives, and I know this personally because this happens in my life all the time, we begin to think and we begin to act as if we're our own masters and we're our own lords. We begin to decide for ourselves outside of the counsel of Scripture, outside of the guidance and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, what actually is best for us. So in a localized context, we don't allow the authority to Jesus to reach into the inner recesses of our hearts. And when I don't consistently consider Jesus by meeting alone with him in prayer, reading his word, meditating on his word, that's when my heart becomes hard. So the Christian can harden his heart, and this is a troubling truth. So shepherd your heart. Shepherd your heart to keep it soft. And then take the fruit of that hard shepherding into your household relationships and into relationships in this church and in your small group and wherever else the Lord has put you in this church. So that's the first troubling truth for our heart. And the second one is equally sobering, and that is that whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. Unbelief will naturally take root in the heart. We're going to keep going in Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13. The author has spent a good amount of time explaining in the earlier verses Old Testament Israel and the hardness of their heart and their unbelief. But the reading audience or the author was going through the same thing. And he tells them, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The sobering reality is this. And I know this again in my own life. Because of sin's lingering effects, my heart does not naturally grow in its belief and its trust. I have to actually work hard to grow my heart in its belief and its trust in the Lord. We need to understand that there is a connection between trusting in the Lord, believing in the Lord and understanding His word. So let's go to the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. We're going to look at Luke chapter 24. We're going to start at verse 14, and we're going to go through verse 25. And this is a context where there are believers. Jesus is with believers. And these are believers who are having difficulty believing. So we find in verse 14, they were walking together, these believers, and they were talking with each other about the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word in sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. So at the end of verse 17, these men are sad. Why are they sad? Verse 19 tells us that they knew that Jesus was mighty in word and deed. They knew he was a prophet. But the high priests crucified him in verse 20. Verse 21, they were hoping that he would be the redeemer for Israel. But it's the third day. We haven't seen him. They even had the testimony of the women that there was an empty tomb. And so they sent some men to go find and see what was taking place. But they didn't see him. So they're sad. Look at the rebuke that Jesus gives them in verse 25. He says, "O foolish men and slow of heart to believe." And what's really important here is we look at what it was that they were slow to believe. They were slow to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. They didn't believe God's word. They had for themselves a multitude of Old Testament references that the Messiah would be crucified and they knew those references they knew those texts they knew that the savior would be put on a cross and you'd be crucified they also had a multitude of old testament references about the the coming of a conquering king so they had these two things they had testimony from scripture that the savior would be crucified on a cross they had testimony from scripture that that same savior would be the conquering king and he would come How could the crucified Messiah become the conquering king if he wasn't raised from the dead? Everything they had seen at the cross, a substitute being offered, blood being shed, the disciples were not seeing it for what it truly was. And what it was was Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about himself. Slowness of heart to believe is a condition the Christian will face because of indwelling sin. The unbeliever in their unmixed condition has no capacity to believe the Bible's testimony of Jesus. The believer does. But they will slowly, sin will slowly drag your heart away from trusting the Lord with that belief. And that's a troubling truth for my heart. The third troubling truth is that self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Never moves the heart nearer to God. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. The context here is that Jesus is being pressed. Jesus is being harassed. He's being pursued by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are looking to eliminate Jesus because he is an obstacle to their religious rule. So they use their own man-made religion as a vehicle to do this. They have developed in the intertestamental period a system of man-made laws And their purpose for those laws was to firmly establish themselves in the position of religious authority. We've heard this in John's teaching in the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. There was layer upon layer upon layer of man-made law that was layered upon the word of God and obscured the word of God and was given a higher priority than the word of God. So here they use the issue of hand washing to test Jesus. Their their man-made law imposed specific hand-washing requirements on these people before they would eat. Something that the Old Testament doesn't require the Jewish people to do while eating. There were hand-washing requirements for others, but not for the general population as a whole, as it relates to eating. So in verse 2, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat. So when Jesus responds to them, he doesn't even answer their question. He rebukes them. And he shows them how their man-made laws are a violation of scripture. So in verse 4, Jesus says to them, when he's answering their question, he says something to them. God said, honor your father and mother. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. Their man-made religion called for them to dedicate resources to God that God had intended they use to provide care for their family, their elderly, aging parents. The Pharisees were willing to obey God's Old Testament command to honor their parents so they could offer that same money as a gift to the temple. And that money would eventually make its way back to the Pharisees themselves. So it was a very greedy, self-sustaining system. It looked holy because it was a gift being given to the temple, but it violates God's law because those resources weren't being used as God intended them to be used to care for aging parents. So they devised for themselves what they believed would give them right standing before God. They came up with something that they thought would put them in a good position before God. And they put that there in place of God said, what we must do to be obedient. Jesus says to them the same thing that Isaiah says to them, to wicked Old Testament Israel, and he says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What we want to notice here is what effect man-made religion has on the man and his position relative to God. Their heart is far from me. It takes a person far from God. So the unbeliever decides he needs to be religious, So he devises something that he thinks will give him a right, good standing before God. And deep down inside, he's thinking God will set aside his perfect law in favor of my self-made religion. That's what he's thinking at heart level. This person appears religious, but God's assessment of them is that their hearts are far from him. So self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. So be mindful and be thoughtful of that. So we've got three troubling truths. We've got the fact that hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God. The, fart, the heart falls into unbelief very naturally. And then suppose it crosses the sinner's mind to be religious. Suppose the sinner wants God to accept his version of religion over God's design. That kind of heart is not open to God, it's not near God. So, does the sinner have any hope? Of course, he does. And the only hope that he has is God's hope, he has God himself. A God who's not motivated to act based on what he sees in the sinner, but he's motivated to act because of his own heart for the sinner. His own heart to save the sinner. That's the gospel message that we want to celebrate this morning. Let's think about what happens at conversion. Sin's power to enslave the believer is broken. But sin's ability to entice the believer is not. The believer is still capable of hardening their heart, because of the deceitfulness of sin and they're capable of falling into doubt and unbelief at times. So let's take a look at what God has done in saving the sinner. And these are five comforting truths that I hope we leave with today. And it's important when we look at this to watch God's interaction with the heart from the beginning to the end. Before I do that, I need to take a drink so you can hear me. And we're going to notice two things that take place here. The first thing we're going to notice is the power of the gospel in these five truths. And the second thing we're going to notice in these five truths is God personally interacting with the human heart. So God overcomes the hardness of the heart and the slowness of the heart to believe. And God dispels self-made religion from the heart. These things are all really offensive to God. Yet conversion, God gives this man the ability to see what he could never see in his former condition. So the first thing that God does is that God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. And to do that, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And it's really important that we start by getting a good look at how dark our hearts were in our unsaved condition. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he says to them, Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. And verse 4 helps us understand this. Now, for those people, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We see here in verse 3 that for those who are perishing, the God of this world, who is Satan, has blinded their mind. Not blinded their eyes, he's blinded their mind. And what's the result of that blinded mind? It's at the end of the verse 4. They don't see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In their minds, they can't comprehend Christ for who he truly is. Satan himself has blinded the mind of the unbelieving man. So that he can't see the exalted place of Christ in the gospel. And that is the plate of the unbelieving man. And it's in that context that we get really encouraged when we see what God does in <laughs> verses 5 and 6. We do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Christ. Really helpful here just to take a look at the subject, the verb, direct object. God shown in our hearts to give light in the face of Christ. God shines into our heart to give spiritual enlightenment. God doesn't wait for the unbeliever to have an undarkened mind, and they're stuck in that position. God doesn't wait for the hardened heart to become soft. He doesn't wait for that person to solve their own problems. God takes the initiative, and he does that by enlightening them with the truth that they need to believe in order to save. And that is our first comforting truth, that God enlightens darkened hearts. Just think back to conversion, your own conversion experience, and and consider how it was that you contemplated Christ and how it was that you understood Christ in a very new way. All the same words that you may have heard before in life, but now you understood Christ to be who he really was. And all of that is because God was enlightening your mind. Second truth, in addition to enlightening, is that God cleanses. He cleanses hearts through faith. We're going to go to Acts chapter 15 to see this. And this is a really good passage. This is a passage that helps us understand uh, what was going on in the early church. Uh, The church is very, very young here. It had only been in in place for a short time. The background here is uh, starting with the church in Jerusalem. And the church in Jerusalem had sent leading Jewish men from that church to Antioch. So you have Jerusalem in the south sending men to a church in Antioch in the north. And this is their message in verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was taking place in the church. One church was sending to another church the message we see in verse 1. This is a works-based salvation, a salvation that says, you can only be saved if you become a Jew. There was a great deal of debate over this. So in verse 2, the brethren in the church in Antioch, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of them should go up to Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas and some of the others traveled to Jerusalem to sort this out. And this is what became known as the Jerusalem Council. And the major issue was, does the Gentile need to be circumcised in order to be saved? And it's in that context that we see the hand of God. And this is where Peter speaks one of the clearest explanations of the gospel. Peter is absolutely clear here. This is not the same Peter that denied Christ earlier. Verse 6. As we read starting in verse 6, watch in verse 9 for the hand of God. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He also did to us. Verse 9 And God made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither them nor our fathers have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, your heart is dirty and it needs to be cleansed. And God is the one who does it. God doesn't require us to clean ourselves because we're not capable of cleaning ourselves. When we attempt to do that, we make ourselves more dirty. Instead, he is the one who cleans because he is the one who's saving. We ask ourselves, well, how is it that God cleanses us? How does God clean us? He uses faith, and we see that in verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Faith is the act of looking away from yourself in order to entirely entrust yourself to God. To trust God to perform a redeeming work in you that you cannot perform in yourself. You don't have faith if you don't believe those things. As long as you remain in a heart condition where you're willing to look to yourself, you will never trust God, therefore you remain spiritually unacceptable before him. But we're not naturally born with the ability or the desire to look away from ourselves. From the day we're born, we we know ourselves, we trust ourselves, we think very highly of ourselves. And if you want proof of that, just look at a young child. A young child thinks very, very, very highly of themselves. That's the condition that we're all born in. And this is where grace comes in. Look at verse 11. Peter says, We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. God looks at the sinner who's at enmity with him and he gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them the ability to look away from themselves and to look to Christ. To be given by God the ability to do what you could never do about on your own to bring about salvation That is God's grace, and that's our second comforting truth that God cleanses the heart through faith. Thirdly, we're going to see something that's one of the most important things that the believer must understand for for sanctification, and that is that God actually frees the heart from sin to become obedient. We're going to look at Romans chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 17 and 18. Romans 6 is a, a wonderful chapter because it talks about the Christian's new relationship to sin. Romans 7 talks about the Christian's new relationship to the law. But Romans 6 tells us about the new relationship that a Christian has to sin and the implications of that new relationship. So, when God saves the sinner, the first area he works on is the heart. He works in the inner man. Because that's where the bondage to sin has existed. That's where you have the hardness of heart, the slowness to believe. That's where you have the desire to establish a man-made religion, your own system, your own way of justifying yourself before the Lord. But look what God does at the heart level, starting in verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Prior to conversion, the unregenerate person is a slave of sin. Their heart was only able to respond to one master, and that master was sin. You see the words slaves of sin, and you look at that, and that's the language of bondage. That's what's taking place here. There's bondage. There was no freedom to follow any other master. But after conversion, the Christian is obedient from the heart. It's a willful, joyful obedience. It's not an outward feigned, pretend obedience, but it's a, an obedience that the, in which the believer is now free to wholeheartedly give himself over to the Lord. But how did this come about if the person was at one time a slave of sin? And this is where we see the hand of God at work in verse 17. And This is really important we understand this. Uh, Paul writes, You became obedient to the heart, To that form of teaching to which you were committed. We might look at that and say, oh, the Christian is maintaining a commitment to biblical teaching. The Christian is so committed, they're doing it themselves. But that's actually not what's going on here. What's going on here is that God is at work. Hang on a sec. If you ever want to communicate a message, you have to be able to speak. So bear with me, guys. Um, So you can look at the end of verse 17. And you could read that by saying, oh, the the believer is committed to the Lord. They they have a they're maintaining a strong commitment to the Lord themselves. But that's not actually what's going on here. Uh, The word and the phrase you were committed is a passive verb. And what is not happening here is uh, the Christian is committing themselves to this form of teaching. Instead, what is happening is Paul is describing a situation in which a person commits another to a form of teaching. The Greek word there is talking about to have been given over to something. It's in the passive sense. What this is really saying is you were committed over to a form of teaching. You were handed over to the gospel teaching by God. The committing, the handing over was done for you by somebody else. And who is it that did that? Well, you look at the beginning of the question or the beginning of the verse and you see who the thanks is being given to. The thanks is being given to God because he is the one who committed the believer to the form of teaching that saves and sanctifies. So your position under the gospel is committed. It's accomplished by God who brought about an obedience at the heart level And that is how God freed you from sin. One of the most encouraging verses I find in Romans chapter 6 is verse 4. It talks about how just as the believer was united with Christ in his death, he's also united with him in his resurrection, so he has the ability to walk in newness of life. We actually are freed from sin's rule over us, and we have the ability to obey and walk in newness of life. So God is the one who frees, and that's our third comforting truth. So once we've had light shined into our lives, once we've been freed from the rule of sin, uh, the fourth principle here is that Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. We're going to see that in Ephesians chapter 3. This is, again, at the end of the section which Paul is describing to the church in Ephesus how it is that God saves. And Paul is just rejoicing in the result of God's saving work. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19 together. And let's take a look at what happens in verse 17 specifically. Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus and he's teaching them by way of how he prays for them. And his prayer is a, an explanation that the principal means by which the church makes God's wisdom known in salvation is Christ dwelling in the believer. The way that the believer puts on display God's wisdom in salvation is by Christ actually living within the heart of that believer. So look at verse 17. Paul is praying all of these things that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that, whenever you see so that, it's important to join the two two things together, the thing that comes before the so that and the thing that comes after the so that. We're being strengthened with power, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is not the original indwelling of Christ that takes place at conversion. Paul isn't praying for that. What he's praying here is for a permanent dwelling, settling near nearness of the Lord. It's an intensified word for a dwelling. It's not a temporary dwelling. It's not pitching a tent. It's a permanent dwelling in a near basis. It's a dwelling where the resident is pleased with the accommodations. And here Christ has found a heart that is oriented towards him. In the same way that God himself is perfectly at home to reside in the body of Christ, and the Christian is to strive for that kind of heart in which Jesus is at home. The kind of thought process, the kind of affections, the kind of speech, the kind of actions that Christ would be pleased to dwell in. Like his original indwelling came by faith through grace, this practical indwelling comes also through faith and ongoing trust. So Christ does dwell in us positionally as believers. Because we're believers, we're in Christ. We have Christ dwelling in us. But what kind of resonance does he have within us? How accommodating is is our inner man to Christ as a function of what we think about, how we respond to things that are... Um, not what we expected them to be. They're an inconvenience. They're causing us to make other plans. Just evaluate yourself and ask yourself, what kind of residence am I for Christ when things aren't going well? Ask yourself that. What will help you to do this? It's the divine strength of the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 16. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. The Holy Spirit working in the inner man is what enables the believer to be a good dwelling place for Christ. And that's our fourth comforting truth, that Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. That's really encouraging. The last thing we're going to look at is that Christ establishes hearts without blame and holiness. I know my life today. I I know my own blame. I know my own sin. I know the cost of it. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 13. The important thing to keep in mind here is that Paul is writing to a church that he didn't get to spend a lot of time with. If you read about Paul's second missionary journey, he he travels down through Greece, and he spends a very short period of time in Thessalonica. Well, this church actually sprouted, and they flourished, and they were doing really, really well. But they didn't have a lot of time with Paul. By contrast, Paul spent three years with the church in Ephesus. So the church in Ephesus was this deep, rich, well-informed church. This was a younger church that didn't have the same kind of depth. And uh, so Paul is writing them, and he wants them to understand uh, the condition that they will be in at the second coming of Christ. So I read this. Take note in verse 13 of the work of Jesus in the believer. Paul wants to return to them, to see them a second time. And he writes, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So he's describing the kind of relationship that they have with one another. Verse 13, So that, again, He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Look at the work that Christ accomplishes in the heart of the believer in verse 13. This is all in the context of when they abound in love for one another in verse 12. So in verse 13, he establishes your heart without blame and holiness. To establish the Lord Jesus Christ makes the Christian's heart strong and firmly settled in the gospel. He establishes it without blame. This is the negative side of the coin. Jesus removes all of our sin. And on the positive aspect of it, he establishes that person in holiness. Jesus sets the Christian apart from sin and its power. So who does all of this? Verse 12, the Lord Jesus Christ does this. And where does the Lord Jesus Christ do this? He does this before the Father, before God our Father. And when does he do this? He does this at his second coming, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So from conversion, when a person is made regenerate, all the way to glorification, God is active within us, and he's powerfully working in us to establish our hearts. And it's going to culminate in us being without blame and being holy, holy before God, when Christ comes again. And that's our fifth and comforting truth. So we want to remember in all of this, what we want to remember is what God is doing. God is enlightening the heart. God is cleansing the heart. God is freeing the heart from the power of sin. Christ makes himself at home in the heart, and Christ establishes the heart before God at the second coming. The gospel is all about God and what he does to create a new man. It's good for us to stop and remember what our hearts were like before Christ. Every one of us would raise our hand and say, my heart was hard. It was unbelieving. It was eager to be religious without being near to God. And this is what God had to do to change our hearts and secure us all the way to the end. So those are really, really encouraging things. So what about us? What should my response be to all of this? My response to all of this is to recognize first and foremost that God is the one who did a powerful work in my life. But I cannot be neglectful of what God is so committed to. If God is committed to my establishment, freeing my heart from sin, cleansing me, all of those things, I can't be neglectful of that. What God gives attention to, I must give attention to. So the same thing we, we say every single week. The way we give attention to the things that that God is very intentional about is we shepherd our own hearts with God's word. Find time every day to meet alone with the Lord, to know him and to worship him, to love him, to fear him and obey him. I really like what Matt said a few weeks ago when he was describing um, our interactions with the Lord. When we sit down with our Bible open, if we sit down with our Bible and we, we see our reading passage for the day and we rip through the passage and we We think about it a little and we get up and we go away. We really haven't met with God. We've met with God when we we take what is being said and we allow it to speak into our heart as who we are. And when we do that, um, we are strong in the Lord. So thanks for your time this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you, Father, that you take wretched sinners, sinners that are lost, sinners that have no hope before you, Sinners that cannot save themselves. Sinners that are sure they are in a good position. Lord, and you shine light into us and you make us able to understand your son, Jesus Christ. You clean us. You free us from sin's power. You send your son to dwell within us. He is a good Lord and a good shepherd. And then you establish us, Lord, holy and without blame. We long for the day when we will be without blame before you. A day when we will be holy before you, entirely set apart for for service to you. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for these men. Lord, I pray for us as we enter back into our families, our households, our relationships and our jobs. Lord, that we would be mindful of the work that you have done to rescue us, the work that you are doing to sustain us and the work that you will do in us in eternity. Lord, that that would compel us to love you and be faithful to you. Lord, that we would represent you well to our friends, to those in our household. Lord, that we would represent you well in this church. So I pray for us, Lord. I pray that you would grant us grace to do that. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.